Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. Welcome to Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagnan. Pennsylvania government last year passed new legislation for new drills in the fracking industry to regulate the leakage of methane in the environment. There's still more work to be done, and some say it's a critical environmental issue for the entire state. Intercom Communications is helping bring awareness to this situation. We're going to start off by introducing you to Vicki Patton. She is general counsel and head of the U.S. Clean Air Program at the Environmental Defense Fund. Vicki, welcome. Always a pleasure to have a new voice. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you do, who you represent, and the term general counsel. What does all that mean? Well, Paula, thank you so much for the opportunity to be part of this discussion. Um, I serve as general counsel and head of U.S. Clean Air Programs at an environmental advocacy group called Environmental Defense Fund. I've spent about 30 years of uh, my career um, focused on uh, protecting human health and the environment from harmful air pollution um, and work in an organization in Environmental Defense Fund that is very solutions-oriented. We approach our problem-solving from uh, the perspective of science. We're data-driven. We're also looking for solutions that are going to be uh, really cost-effective, and we emphatically believe, Paula, and it's a really important point in it, in a, at a time when our country is so deeply divided, that protection of clean air, clean water, the protection of human health and the environment is not a partisan issue, and that all Americans, all Pennsylvanians care deeply about Um, ensuring that their children, their families, their community have clean air and clean water. And so we work with uh, Red America, Purple America, Blue America to try to kind of roll up our sleeves and forge common ground in finding solutions uh, that are going to be truly meaningful, anchored in science, and durable. Would it also be the, because as as you're mentioning about the environment, uh, the Clean Air Act, is that something that our listeners might be more familiar with that uh, maybe not necessarily you, but the Environmental Defense Fund has been involved with bringing about? Paula, um, the Environmental Defense Fund, together with um, a number of partners and allies, has worked for many years to help um, secure uh, our nation's Clean Air Act and to help ensure that it gets carried out in a way 
that protects the health of our children in our communities. Um, uh, I had the privilege of beginning uh, my career um, at about the time the Clean Air Act was um, updated in 1990 and then have spent uh, many years since then working with partners and allies of all different perspectives and outlooks to ensure that it delivers on the promise that it made to Americans of um, healthier and and longer lives. You know, one of the really great news about um, clean air in America is that um, over decades, you know, we have really, through collaboration, through our ability to listen to each other and work together, demonstrated that the words on paper in the Clean Air Act can deliver healthier, longer lives for millions of Americans at a fraction of the costs that are often sort of predicted by the regulated community. And we've also shown that having clean air and a healthy environment um, is emphatically compatible with having a prosperous economy and jobs. And, you know, in many respects, the Clean Air Act is this tremendous American success story um, that has delivered really life-saving protections in a way that's also positioned the U.S. and uh, a number of businesses and states that have led as, as global leaders in forging new technologies and policy solutions that have really um, inspired other parts of the world. So when we talk about something such as the Clean Air Act, a lot of people would recognize that for the different things that has happened with um, rules for emissions and for for other things that are in the environment. And you said, Vicki, that you were around when it was when it was changing. Do you know how long the Clean Air Act has actually been in existence? Paula, the modern version of the Clean Air Act was adopted in 1970, um, and it was adopted with overwhelming, far-reaching bipartisan support. Um, And then it was overhauled again over time in 1977 and 1990, and each time um, our country sort of made this bipartisan covenant to achieve deeper reductions to uh, address new and serious emerging health and environmental problems uh, due to air pollution um, and to do it um, by working together. Um, It's a reflection of where we're at now that, you know, it's it's an anomaly in American history for us to have um, a, a national government that's not leading to have a national government that um, is not kind of rolling up its sleeves and, and bringing people together to solve problems, which really, uh, you know, underscores the importance of, you know, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in, in helping to ensure that uh, we continue to make progress at a time when, unlike other times in history where we've had, you know, Republican and Democratic presidents alike leading the way, we, we do not. We do not have that leadership. And in fact, we're, we're, we're headed in reverse. And so it's really an important moment for Pennsylvania 
and in other states to help lead the way. One of the reasons that I was starting with the discussion about the Clean Air Act is because it is something that has happened. It's something that is in place. It's something, as you said, has substantiated history behind it in the way that it came about and in the way that it's still being utilized. Now, you are also involved in something, I I don't want to say it's new, but it's a little bit different than the Clean Air Act, although it still has to do with clean air, and that is the discussion of methane. There's so many different aspects of this, Vicki. Can you give us just a little bit of an overview of the Environmental Defense Fund and your part in trying to do the same thing with methane as clean air so many years ago started with? Paula, you know, one of the lessons learned from years of um, working in America to protect Human health and the environment from air pollution, and this is this is again a great and 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 compelling American success story that every every American should be proud of, and that is we have confronted new and emerging problems that are really serious, and we've addressed them with great success um, in a way that's delivered far-reaching health and environmental benefits, and. And, and highly cost effectively. And so think for example of, you know, the the you know, the scientists in Pittsburgh who were the first to determine that lead and gasoline was a threat to the brain development of children and having serious harm. And it eventually led to national policies that provided for the removal of lead from gasoline. And there were many in the business community who said, this can't be done, we can't remove the lead from gasoline, and we did. And it was one of the single most important things we did to protect um, the brain development of, of our children. Likewise, you know, a debate over whether we could put catalytic converters in cars, and, and some in the auto industry said it can't be done. It will bankrupt the U.S. auto industry, and we did it. And not only did we do these things, removing lead from gasoline, putting catalytic converters in cars in our own country, but these were the foundations for global change. We are at a very similar place in needing to, on the basis of science, on the basis of proven solutions to address the methane that is leaking, that is being discharged and vented from oil and gas development. The good news, Paula, is that these solutions that reduce methane are reducing a very potent uh, climate pollutant. Uh, They will also reduce the contaminants that form ground-level ozone or smog. They will also reduce toxic benzene. And so when we forge these solutions to reduce methane, we're going to have a trifecta in terms of public health and environmental benefits. And we're going to be avoiding the waste of a really important resource, 
um, because methane is natural gas. That is what it is. And um, we have some really um, wonderful proven models to build from, but it's it's urgent that Pennsylvania continue to move forward in addressing the methane pollution from oil and gas. And again, there's some really um, proven models uh, to build from. So when we're talking about something along those lines, as far as, you know, looking at the state, is it just here or is this something that, again, across the country that people are also dealing with? Because again, just like with clean air, everybody has it and we all share the air. So are we also sharing the pros and the cons of the uh, methane that's being released into the, into the environment? Paula, there are states that have for several years um, put in place measures, solutions that help identify the leaks, the venting, the discharges of methane pollution associated with oil and gas development and have shown that you can reduce pollution by 50% or more through highly cost-effective measures, the kind of centerpiece of those solutions that are being, you know, they're in place in the field in um, states like Wyoming and Colorado um, involve um, ensuring that we're using state-of-the-art monitoring technologies to try to identify the leaks in the, in the field. There's, there's new um, cameras, new infrared cameras, and other monitoring technologies um, that help um, oil and gas companies see the leaks, see the discharges, and then uh, they can take corrective action. But the public policy that calls for those companies to be out in the field looking for those leaks is really important. And that is really the centerpiece of what other states are doing in Colorado and Wyoming and elsewhere to take a serious step forward in addressing the methane pollution associated with oil and gas. Pennsylvania, you know, it, you know we do not want Pennsylvania to fall behind. Um, Pennsylvania should be at the forefront in developing and deploying these solutions. And again, when you reduce methane in someone's community, when you reduce methane from oil and gas development, you're also cutting harmful smog pollution. You're also reducing benzene, which is associated with cancer. This is a trifecta in protecting human health and the environment, and it can be deployed in a highly cost-effective way, building from, you know, examples that are proven in places like Wyoming and Colorado. Vicki, I'd like to continue our conversation as far as methane and leaks, and because I think there's so much more. So if I can just ask you to hold on for a moment, and we'll be right back, and we'll continue our discussion on methane. And, and, and highly cost-effectively, and so... Think, for example, of, you know, the, the, 
you know, the scientists in Pittsburgh who were the first to determine that lead and gasoline was a threat to the brain development of children and having serious harm. And it eventually led to national policies that provided for the removal of lead from gasoline. And there were many in the business community who said, this can't be done. We can't remove the lead from gasoline. And we did. And it was one of the single most important things we did to protect um, the brain development of, of our children. Likewise, you know, a debate over whether we could put catalytic converters in cars. And, and some in the auto industry said it can't be done. It will bankrupt the U.S. auto industry. And we did it. And not only did we do these things, removing lead from gasoline, put a, putting catalytic converters in cars in our own country, but these were the foundations for global change. We are at a very similar place in needing to, on the basis of science, on the basis of proven solutions to address the methane that is leaking, that is being discharged and vented from oil and gas development. The good news, Paula, is that these solutions that reduce methane are reducing a very potent uh, climate pollutant. Uh, they will also reduce the contaminants that form ground-level ozone or smog. They will also reduce toxic benzene. And so when we forge these solutions to reduce methane, we're going to have a trifecta in terms of public health and environmental benefits, and we're going to be avoiding the waste of a really important resource um, because methane is natural gas. That is what it is. And um, we have some really um, wonderful proven models to build from, but it's, it's urgent that Pennsylvania continue to move forward in addressing the methane pollution from oil and gas. And again, there's some really um, proven models uh, to build from. So when we're talking about something along those lines, as far as, you know, looking at the state, is it just here? Or is this something that, again, across the country that people are also dealing with? Because again, just like with clean air, everybody has it. And we all share the air. So are we also sharing the pros and the cons of the uh, methane that's being released into the uh, into the environment? Paula, there are states that have for several years um, put in place measures, solutions that help identify the leaks, the venting, the discharges of methane pollution associated with oil and gas development and have shown that you can reduce pollution by 50% or more through highly cost-effective measures, the kind of centerpiece of those solutions that are being, you know, they're in place in the field in um, states like Wyoming and Colorado um, involve 
um, ensuring that we're using state-of-the-art monitoring technologies to try to identify the leaks in the in the field. There's there's new um, cameras, new infrared cameras, and other monitoring technologies um, that help um, oil and gas companies see the leaks, see the discharges, and then uh, they can take corrective action. But the public policy that calls for those companies to be out in the field looking for those leaks is really important. And that is really the centerpiece of what other states are doing in Colorado and Wyoming and elsewhere to take a serious step forward in addressing the methane pollution associated with oil and gas. Pennsylvania, you know, it, you know, we do not want Pennsylvania to fall behind. Um, Pennsylvania should be at the forefront in developing and deploying these solutions. And again, when you reduce methane in someone's community, when you reduce methane from oil and gas development, you're also cutting harmful smog pollution. You're also reducing benzene, which is associated with cancer. This is a trifecta in protecting human health and the environment, and it can be deployed in a highly cost-effective way, building from, you know, examples that are proven in places like Wyoming and Colorado. Vicki, I'd like to continue our conversation as far as methane and leaks, and because I think there's so much more. So if I can just ask you to hold on for a moment, and we'll be right back, and we'll continue our discussion on methane. Away. We'll have more with Vicki Patton, General Counsel and Head of the U.S. Clean Air Program at the Environmental Defense Fund when Special Edition returns. Welcome back to Special Edition. We're talking with Vicki Patton. She's General Counsel and Head of the U.S. Clean Air Program at the Environmental Defense Fund. She's telling us about methane, which some say is a critical environmental issue for the state of Pennsylvania. Vicki, welcome back. And of course, we're talking about methane and methane awareness. And Vicki Patton is joining us, General Counsel, Environmental Defense Fund. And we're concerned about all of this because, again, everybody's air is everybody's air. And we've been talking about the methane problem. And it comes from it, it comes from not only man-made, but it also comes from natural. Sources as well, and there's been a lot of memes on Facebook with cows and things, and and we just want to get to the cut to the chase right there. That's not what we're talking about here, right? That is not what we're talking about. What we are talking about are the single largest sources of um, industrial methane pollution, and, and that is the methane that gets discharged in conjunction with oil and gas development. And, you know, the methane pollution gets leaked, it gets vented, it gets flared, and the good news, Paul, is that there are solutions. There are solutions that um, businesses are deploying, oil and gas companies are deploying to, to address 
methane pollution, and state policies that are proving that we can dramatically reduce methane pollution in a way that is highly cost-effective, that is common sense. Um, Governor Wolf has um, taken important steps uh, to begin tackling methane pollution in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. It's going to be really important that uh, we all continue to support him in ensuring that he gets those protections and safeguards across the finish line and it means ensuring that it's not just when we're develop, you know, when oil and gas companies are developing um, new uh, drilling, new um, industrial activities that they're mitigating methane, but that we also ensure that um, Pennsylvania is a leader in reducing the methane discharge from the existing oil and gas. Um, activity, and and Pollock could not be more important for Pennsylvania uh, to to move forward, so that it it doesn't get left behind as as other states, um, you know, continue to um, demonstrate and pioneer a whole host of solutions. The states that are leading are um, uh, revealing that um, we can achieve deeper reductions. At, at a fraction of the cost, and they're also becoming centers of technological innovation. Um, they're becoming the places where uh, the companies that are developing the most cost-effective monitoring solutions to identify methane leaks um, are um, centered um, because they see a market um, in having those advanced technologies and those companies are creating jobs and advanced technologies that will, you know, benefit a number of other states and other parts of the world. And it's really important that Pennsylvania continue to lead to protect human health and the environment. And so that is at the forefront of these clean air technologies, these clean air technologies that, as we've seen in the past with the catalytic converter <laughs> and with scrubbers on um, power plants, um, that have been developed um, in the U.S. and have become, you know, a source of global technological innovation and economic development and job creation. When we're talking along those lines, Vicki, um, and, and, you know, you mentioned the catalytic converters and things like that, People are always concerned, as you've mentioned before, that there are cameras and there are other detection devices that are now being developed that can seek out these methane leaks before they become a real problem. But the average consumer says, well, that's all well and good. But now it's going to maybe cost me more because they're going to have to give that cost of developing these things to me because I'm the one who uses the natural gas where the methane is a primary component of. Kind of, do you see where I'm going as far as that's concerned? Because everybody's concerned about the environment, but in the end, there could mean, just like with catalytic converters, they, at the time may have upped the price of a of a vehicle. So now you're talking something else. Is that a viable thing to be concerned about? The, the breakthrough that 
um, our country has demonstrated, you know, throughout history, time and time again, is that when we roll up our sleeves and work together to tackle um, an air pollution problem, um, that we achieve deeper reductions uh, than anticipated and at a fraction of the cost that were predicted. And that's because once the public policy is put into place, America's really tremendous at innovating. Americans are problem solvers. Pennsylvanians are problem solvers. And if you, you think about, Paula, sort of the debate over scrubbing at, at uh, coal plants, um, in the late 70s and the early 80s, um, and throughout, really, the, into the, the mid-80s, it was a strenuous argument um, by power companies that it was just not technologically feasible or cost-effective to um, scrub a coal plant, and that is to remove the, the sulfur dioxide that gets discharged from coal plants in massive volumes, and that you know causes lethal particulates, and that falls out of the air uh, to the earth and to our lakes and forests as acid rain. And today, scrubbing technology is being deployed at power plants all across our country. The scrubbing technology that was developed in the U.S. has been exported to all parts of the world. And at a time when this debate was first happening and companies said it would be, you know, $2,000 a ton to remove sulfur dioxide from power plants, it is now being removed from power plants at less than $100 a ton. The... Um, we're seeing the same situation unfold in the race to reduce methane from industrial oil and gas development. And just a few years ago, um, the oil and gas companies were saying, you know, it's really expensive uh, to have these cameras and this technology, this monitoring technology in the field to identify leaks. And today, already, it is a small fraction of the costs that were claimed just a few years ago. And it is this kind of virtuous cycle that gets created from well-designed, thoughtful, data-driven public policy and private sector innovation. And you know, there are companies that have um, developed all sorts of advances in technologies that are driving the cost down. And it, and it ranges from um, large companies to small and includes innovators like there's um, a, a company uh, that was uh, formed from some engineers out of Rice University. And... Um, you know, these are this is great. These are you know young people who saw the opportunity to contribute to society through engineering by identifying and developing instruments and equipment that can identify leaks 
in an incredibly effective way at a fraction of the cost. The other thing is we've seen is that um, public policy can be designed in a way that's adaptive. And so one of the things that some states have done is they've tackled um, the methane problem is they've woven into the design of their public policy adaptation so that as new monitoring systems get developed and are deployed to identify methane leaking and discharging in the field and are increasingly cost-effective, they can be immediately sort of adapted and incorporated into um, the solutions that the private sector can use. Um, we don't want right our public policy to be static as new innovations and new engineering sort of drives costs down. We want to make sure that those solutions get integrated into the tools that the private sector can use to address this very serious pollution problem and do it in an increasingly cost-effective way. One of the things that I saw on the Environmental Defense Fund website was that they have teamed up with Google Earth Outreach, and that has given them an opportunity to find ways to assess leaks that are under streets, under sidewalks, different things like that. So that in itself, I would think, is just uh, another innovative way where... Someone has taken the bull by the horns and has said, here's one way to look at it. So is that something that is becoming one of the innovative methods of hopefully, uh, you know, because, again, when you're talking about these leaks, they can cause pretty major problems in a lot of communities. It's such an important point. Um, In a world of just breathtaking technological advances, um, we all we all carry kind of a monitor in our pockets, right? In in our in our phones, in our smartphones, and um, with you know you know each new sort of technological leap um, and 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 step forward, um, there are increasingly sort of tools and techniques and methods that can identify leaks um, in a way that is really meaningful, um, reliable, accurate, and increasingly, you know, cheaper and cheaper at, at a fraction of the cost. And if we don't have a conversation about the importance of reducing the methane, the smog forming pollutants, the benzene that is being discharged from oil and gas, we won't have the innovation in rolling up our sleeves and identifying the most innovative and cost-effective ways to identify those leaks and to um, eliminate those leaks. Um, And the Google uh, mapping project is just such a you know powerful example of that where you know it is um, new technology right that is um, increasingly sort of widely available and able to identify leaks in real time and and provide that data um, to um, private the private sector and to public policymakers and to non-governmental organizations like Environmental Defense Fund. 
um, to help ensure that um, we have the best, um, most accessible real-time data to address these really urgent societal problems. And remember with methane, you've got a potent climate pollutant. You've got a super pollutant that contributes to climate change, you know, at a very, very, in a very potent way. And so every ton of methane that is prevented is preventing the clear and present danger of climate change. It's preventing smog pollution, and it's preventing a lot of toxic benzene. So, you know, these solutions like the Google Mapping Project and all of the other innovations being pioneered to identify and and prevent these leaks, they're really important. And, they're you know, it's, it's a great American success story, right, that these technologies are, you know, ferreting out these problems and doing so, you know, at a fraction of the cost that, that many predicted even just a few years ago. So much information, Vicki. We are going to have to have you back. But if any of our listeners hearing about this today, maybe for the first time, that they didn't realize that something such as this was a concern and that the Environmental Defense Fund was involved in working on this, what would you suggest they do as far as getting more information, who to contact, um, maybe your office, not necessarily your office, but the uh, ED? What, what direction would you put them in? Paula, I would urge um, listeners to ask their policymakers to address the methane pollution associated with oil and gas. It's the single largest source of industrial methane pollution um, in Pennsylvania and in our nation. Um, and also, you know, would welcome, um, you know, they're joining Environmental Defense Fund, um, sharing their ideas, uh, their solutions, um, and, and, and also the concerns uh, they have about uh, uh, the protection of public health and the environment. It's a moment where um, our country is um, really divided in, um, in, in taking uh, action that's really important to protect human health and the environment. And I would urge the listeners to recognize that this is an anomaly, that the long arc of clean air progress in America and Pennsylvania has been bipartisan, it's been data-driven, and uh, we all have a stake in ensuring that we continue to make progress and, and do it in a way that you know, bridges the divide and puts in place lasting protective solutions for the health and well-being of our children and our communities. And you do have a website. Yes, we sure do. And um, it's uh, edf.org. And again, would you know, welcome members, um, uh, people who want to contribute their ideas, their solutions, and their concerns um, as we all work together to address these really important problems. Thanks again to Vicki Patton, General Counsel and Head of the U.S. Clean Air Program at the Environmental Defense Fund, for joining us today.
Intercom Communications is helping bring awareness to this situation, and you may have heard announcements like these on our intercom stations. Here's something you don't hear enough nowadays. Thank you. Thank you, Governor Wolf, for stepping up at a critical moment. Your newly proposed rules to curb methane pollution from existing wells and infrastructure will have an enormous positive impact on Pennsylvania families. Without these rules, those we care about will be exposed to pollution linked to smog, asthma, and cancer. Call Governor Wolf at 717-787-2500 and urge his continued push to enact meaningful and effective methane regulations. There's more special edition yet to come. Welcome back to Special Edition. There's still plenty of winter left, but it's not only in the winter that we have to think about something such as strep throat. Dawn Webster is a physician's assistant and assistant medical director of MedExpress in Pittsburgh. She joins us now to tell us a little bit about strep throat, its symptoms, the signs, the treatments, and how you can avoid it. Dawn, one of those things that we hear so many times, especially when parents have children in school, is there is strep throat in the classroom. What exactly is strep throat? So strep throat is a bacteria, and there's actually a couple different strains of it, um, and it is essentially passed just like any other cough or cold or virus through sneezing and coughing and touching, you know, your mouth and then touching others. But in classrooms, it truly does spread like wildfire. How do you know it's strep throat and not sore throat or maybe just a reaction to dryness or there's so many other things, but we always hear strep throat. How do we know? Sure. So there is a test. There's actually two tests that most offices physician offices do. The first is a rapid strep. So that's a test where you take essentially a very long Q-tip, you swab the back of the throat, in five minutes you know whether it's strep or not. The problem with those tests is they typically only check for the most common strep. Now, there are other types of strep that can also cause symptoms. So if someone has the symptoms that rapid test is negative, we can do what's called a throat culture. And essentially, we send that to the lab, they take that Q-tip, they put it on a Petri dish, and give it a couple days and see if it grows any of the other less common strep bacteria. And then what would you do if it did? Then we do antibiotics, and antibiotics will get rid of strep. Well, that's another one of those discussions because so many times people will say that they're on antibiotics. Is it possible that the antibiotic that you took this year for strep will not take the same kind of effect for next year's strep if you get it again? No, that typically isn't as likely with strep. Strep, luckily, is a very easily treatable um, bacteria. It, it normally is not resistant, and the normal amoxicillins, penicillins will take care of it. What would you say are some of the classic signs of strep? Fever? Yes. So typically with strep, you have obviously a sore throat. Sometimes it starts off just kind of feeling a little scratchy, a little raw, and then typically it gets worse. It gets swollen. So a lot of times people, um, they'll notice a change in their voice. We call it the hot potato voice. 
where, um, you know, your throat gets swollen, so it's a little bit more difficult to talk. Um, fever, like you mentioned, also nausea, sometimes even vomiting, headache. And with that fever, a lot of times you get the aches and the chills. Hot potato voice. I never heard of that one before. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> now, how high, how highly contagious is strep? So it is pretty contagious, but essentially you're not going to get it from just talking to someone. Now, with kids, it's tough because they don't cover their mouth when they cough or they don't cover their you know mouth and nose when they sneeze. So a lot of times they do spread it a little bit more easily or they're sharing cups and not thinking about it. But if it's an adult and they have strep and they want to go to work, as long as they're, you know, washing their hands and and taking care of, you know, hygiene health, then they're not going to spread it. Even with the fever? Yes. Yeah, they're contagious. Um, But essentially, like I said, you know, you have to essentially share those respiratory droplets with someone to spread it to them. So if they're in an office by themselves, they cover their mouths when they sneeze, um, and then they wash their hands. Typically, we let them go to work if they want to. Well, that's a good thing to know because my next question was going to be, can you get strep again? Oh, yes. Yes. And a lot of times, it's something as simple as forgetting to change your toothbrush. So if you have strep, you take all your antibiotics. A week later, you have strep again, and you don't know why. You have to start looking at those things. Did I change my toothbrush? Or... um, you know, do I have a cup in the bathroom that I always use to rinse my mouth out? You know, those are the things that you can actually reinfect yourself with. Oh, so just like you would do getting a cold, you have to think about all these things because you can reinfect yourself? Yes. Wow. Well, that's something to uh, really think about because here we are worried about going out into the world and infecting everybody else. <laughs> but but just using the same toothbrush or cup or even bedclothes? Yeah, I, I absolutely recommend that people... So after you're on those antibiotics for 24 to 48 hours, you're, you're no longer contagious. You essentially should not be able to reinfect yourself. So the typical course of antibiotics is 10 days. So after you take those antibiotics for two to three days, I typically recommend change your toothbrush, wash your bedclothes. Um, If you, if you know, like I said, if you have that cup in the bathroom, make sure you run it through the dishwasher um, and get everything nice and clean so that you don't reinfect yourself. All right. Anything else that we need to know? Because we're still in the midst of this whole season and there's still a long way to go. But you can get strep in the summertime too, right? Oh, yes. You can get strep any time of the year. We just see it a little bit more often in the fall and winter months. Probably because everybody's so cramped and cooped up indoors. Yes, absolutely. Once again, then, give us the symptoms and how soon we need to go and get treatment so we know what we're doing. Sure. So the biggest symptoms with strep throat are um, fever, chills, sore throat, uh, swollen glands. A lot of times they feel a little bit of soreness and, and you can feel those glands puff up in your neck, um, some nausea, headache, and occasionally it's even accompanied by a rash, especially in children. So any of those things, you definitely want to get checked out. Thanks again to Don Webster, Physician's Assistant and Assistant Director of MedExpress in Pittsburgh, for joining us today with some good information on avoiding strep throat. You have the right to feel safe in your home. This includes the right under federal fair housing laws to be free from unwanted sexual conduct. 
I'm United States Attorney David Freed. The Department of Justice wants you to know that if you have been sexually harassed by a landlord or property manager, a loan officer or housing official, a maintenance worker or security guard, you can do something about it. Contact us at 844-380-6178 or email fairhousing at usdoj.gov. You have rights under the Fair Housing Act. Call 844-380-6178 or email fairhousing at usdoj.gov. Everyone has the right to feel safe at home. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories, a production of Intercom Communications. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.